Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast, a show where dreamers and doers share stories of discovering, developing, and spreading their joy with the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Slagle. In this episode, Thad and I sit down with Daniel McEwen, founder of Seagull Bags and Singing Needle Studio. Daniel's the kind of guy who sees a need and then finds a way to fulfill it. So when he needed a better messenger bag that would keep his work dry on his bike commute through school, he made his own. That led to a word-of-mouth business that made him an underground sensation just as the urban cycling movement was gaining momentum. But the speed of his new business also became the one thing that nearly killed it. Daniel shares his rapid rise to success and the humbling reality of an artist navigating the demands of business. Daniel's story is one of perseverance and ingenuity, and proof that sometimes you need to take a step back in order to go forward. Finally, if you're a musician, you'll want to hear Daniel talk about String Stash, the Kickstarter campaign he's launching this month. It's a smart innovation, and you can find the Kickstarter link on our webpage. This is the Joy Venture Podcast with Daniel McEwen. So Daniel, or Dan, we've already had this conversation this morning, but you prefer Dan or either one. So, either, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for inviting us to your awesome space. And I really mean that because when I come down here, I see all your cool tools and your patterns on the wall and uh, your sewing machine and all the stuff that you've got. And it this just makes me want to make stuff. I don't sew at all. But when I come down here, I want to start creating things. So thanks for inviting yeah. us down to your shop. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Glad to have you guys. And thanks for agreeing to to talk with us today, too. Mm-hmm. You have started your own career and have been doing it for quite a quite a while now. I remember the first time you and I met, I happened into your shop. You had a, a really cute little boutique shop down in, uh, is cute okay? That's fine. That's okay. acceptable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a cool, hip shop down in on High Street in the Clintonville area. And what drew me in was, I think it was a giant octopus on the, was a giant octopus painted on the well, wall? Well, it was like a a combination of a bear and a baboon and an octopus. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I walked by that window and I said, I have to go into this place. Yeah. Uh, and I walked in and there was, uh, you know, a counter space there. And then behind it was four or five people just having a total blast sitting at sewing machines, listening to corny music and laughing and... I think there was a dog. Um, yeah. And there was, <laughs> yeah, it was just such a neat place. And then, you know, you had the display of all the, the bags you guys were creating at the time. Um, and I just realized that I kind of found a kindred spirit. So yeah, ended up talking with you a little bit and mm-hmm. then eventually we ended up getting to do your branding and, and working on that together. So that was really fun. But yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to just kind of start out by asking you, uh, Tell us about your upbringing. Tell us about what it was, whether it was your parents or teachers or whoever it was that really kind of pointed you towards creative creativity. You know, what what kind of put you on this trajectory? Mm. Yeah. So my parents, they're they're awesome. I, I I definitely had a a good childhood. 
they were always really supportive at, at whatever I wanted to do. Not a creative bone in either of their bodies. Um, I love them to death, but that's not their strong suit. And it wasn't until high school that um, a high school art teacher saw something I was, I was throwing on the pottery wheel. And they were like, you can do this. You know, you should do this a little bit more. And I'll kind of like help you to get some extra classwork in here and stuff. They actually in, it really encouraged me to just submit a portfolio to CCAD. So, you know, growing up, I was always a really active child, really um, dangerous child for sure. Um, my parents, yeah, I could like hear the gray hairs coming out of their head. Like, <laughs> and the the real the creative side probably didn't come out until I was in late high school. I really had no business submitting a portfolio to an art school. I mean, that was a little bit of a joke, but I, I figured like, screw it. I don't have anything to lose. And yeah, I ended up getting in and, you know, getting a big scholarship. And that was, that's when I thought like, maybe there's, maybe they're seeing something that I'm not even seeing um, in myself. So yeah. So tell me about your experience at CCAD. I, I mean, first off, it was hilarious. I had never drawn or painted anything in my life. And I, when I when I walked into some of those first studio classes, I knew I had I had to just go straight to the teacher and say, "Look, I've never done this ever. You're going to have to like maybe give me some extra guidelines um, so I don't make a total ass of myself." Which I did. I made a complete ass of myself, but it, it was great. I mean, they they taught me so many things that I had missed out on because I hadn't done you know private art lessons or I hadn't really done any of that stuff at all ever. So yeah, it gave a really, really good baseline. This is how you compose things the right way. This is color theory. This is like fonts. This is what makes fonts look cool and, you know, what makes them not work. I mean, it was really hard, but there's something to be said for humility. You know, I mean, I didn't really have business being in a lot of those classes, but if you're teachable, then you really make the most out of out of your experience there, you know. And I, I even think maybe that gave me an edge a little bit, was just coming in and not have, you know, not coming as like, I'm the all-star from my high school. I'm the kid that's super artistic. That was not the situation I was in. So I just had to take the seat and just be humble about it, you know. And it ended up that really helped and, you know, got a lot of a lot of knowledge like that way, you know, just that was the beginning and it even took a little while for me to figure out exactly what I wanted to do there. Cause there were so many options. I knew that I wanted to do ceramics, but ended up by the end getting really involved in printmaking um, and just about everything else. I don't know. I took tons of different classes there. So, so at some point in time you decided to push the pottery wheel aside and, and start using a sewing machine. What, what happened there? What, what sparked that need? I was throwing a lot on the wheel, making pots. I was really satisfied with that. Um, but over time, the process of it really started to kind of grate against my soul, <laughs> to put it lightly. You, you know, you make it, and that's not it. You know, you have to let it dry and wait till it's at the perfect place, and then you can trim it, and then you let it dry again, and then you have to fire it, and then let it cool, and then glaze it, and then fire it again, and... I had a whole semester's full of stuff explode in a kiln. Ugh. And I think that's when I 
I broke up with pottery. <laughs> um, it's not. It's not you. It's me. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's right. It was definitely like a last straw kind of scenario. And I think it, what changes. I was already sewing, and it's so immediate. You put two pieces of fabric together. You sew it, and that's it. It's sewn together, um, and that was so satisfying because it, it met the the functional requirements of you know me needing to make something functional that people would use but it's very immediate even you know the most complex stuff we make as you're making it you are watching it be finished and that's really exciting for me i just yeah the the process definitely was the the biggest downfall doing ceramics and some people really like that and i say go for it (laughs) thumbs up um but that is not that is not my thing, that's for sure. You said you switched to using a sewing machine. Was that for any particular purpose at that time, or just because you kind of decided it was it was giving you that instant gratification? It was only to make bags. I mean, that was, yeah, I had lived near the CCAD campus, but not close enough. I, I mean, it was, you know, probably five miles away, and I didn't have a car at the time. I just had a bike, and I would ride my bike back and forth, and I'd, I'd bought an old like canvas, like army surplus messenger bag. And my stuff just got ruined constantly because it's not waterproof. It's doesn't do very good with weight. Then I saw that I needed something that was better than that. Um, So I did a little bit of research, looked around. I didn't like what I had seen in the haughtiness of youth. I was like, oh, I can make that. Now, not knowing that, even little things, there was thought behind it, you know. So I, I got my grandmother's old sewing machine, got the material, and just went for it. The first bag was so disgusting. <laughs> it was it was so bad. I still have it. It is in a bag in my basement. It's in another bag because I don't want to see it. It's that bad. But you know, it worked, and it kind of. Sp- sparked this little thought in my head that I could probably make this better. So I made another one that was you know, 300% better. And even that one had some serious problems with it. And I was like, I could probably make this one better. And that's kind of how it evolved. So it, yeah, it wasn't really a conscious decision to like, I'm going to start sewing. I didn't have any history of sewing before that. So it was more so just to meet this need to make this thing that I needed, I guess. You could have bought a bag online or at a store and, and gone through five or six or ten bags. And eh, I just don't like it as well. It's kind of like me saying, I, I know I could get a better shoe that's more comfortable. Um, maybe I had to go buy some leather and, and uh, learn how to be a cobbler. What gave you the permission in your own mind to say, I'm just going to pick up this sewing machine for my grandmother and I have no experience in this and I'm going to make a better bag. I, I, th- I think a lot of people come to this idea of, of surely I can't do this. I'm not smart enough, good enough. That's not your, <laughs> that's not your story. What, what gave you, what gave you the confidence to say, I, I can do this. I know I've never made a bag before. I don't sew, but I want to make a bag. Yeah, I, it's funny that you think bring up the thing about shoes. Like, I definitely had that thought too. And <laughs> I watched a single video on YouTube of, some, of an actual cobbler making shoes, and I was like, "I'm good." <laughs> it's 
that is crazy to me. Um, that is just a whole other level of um, skill. Uh, but I, I think at that point, you know, I'd been through a couple years of school and it was just pretty comfortable making stuff with my hands. And, you know, like I, I just thought I, I saw what was out there and it's like, I could probably make that. I'm not sure what that was. I don't know if, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think maybe just the, the thought that I didn't really like what was out there. And so I needed to create something, you know? You know, urban like cycling bags and stuff are huge, huge, gigantic market. There were like three companies back then that were making stuff. Really, I mean, it's really, really small. Maybe four for the world. So it's pretty easy to find something that was not something that I was into. Now it's totally different. I mean, you could think of any kind of crazy thing, and it's probably out there. Um, but that definitely was, yeah, not being able to find the thing that I wanted was a huge motivating factor. And so your niche there, that idea was a messenger bag, you're on a bike, something that's, you know, waterproof, durable, my stuff doesn't get ruined, Yeah, easy to ride my bike with this thing on, and, and which is not a backpack, which is, you know, yeah. it's, it's different. And so you make this for yourself. And you iterated a few more times. You, you, your, your first bag's tucked yeah. away. How does this go from one bag to a company where you're making bags? Yeah. So, I mean, I made one for a friend. And this was maybe after my third or fourth one. And someone saw that one, and they thought that was really cool. And I made one for them. And then this – so we we kind of got – started like right at the start of the the kind of big urban cycling what would become the um polarizing hipster movement um we were kind of right at the ground floor of that and so if you were doing something in that space people would seek you out and so yeah a, a buddy of mine was actually in a a bike shop in New York and there was someone from Japan was in the shop too and they saw the bag and they were like, that's cool. Where'd you get it? And he said, my buddy made it in Columbus and he gave him my phone number. Um, we didn't even have a website. I think we had like a MySpace. <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> Our top friends were sweet. Uh, yeah. I, and he gave me literally a phone number. So I got a call from this guy that owned this really you know, popular shop in Japan and that, yeah, so that was, that's how, that's when things really started to take off. So we were, I was traveling a lot to bike races and that, you know, getting the word out that way. And that's really when I kind of knew that, that that's when I knew that things were, they just kind of turned a corner. So that would have been, um, when I was about to graduate. So at that point I'd been making bags for a couple years already, um, for people, and yeah, there was the day that I graduated college, I had like a massive order going out to Japan, a big order going out to New York and a bunch of just individual orders. And so I went to graduation. I did that. I went back to the studio, finished that stuff up, threw a bike race that night, didn't sleep, went to the airport and went to Europe for a month after that. 
Um, and that mostly to decide if I wanted to actually do this. I like didn't know. I had no idea. I was like, I had a job offer out of college to go and um, work out at like limited brands and do that. I had a bunch of friends out there. And it was either take the chance to be broke for a while and give it a shot and see what happens or instantly kind of, you know, step into a more traditional like workforce and know that I would make a ton of money, but would probably in the end sacrifice the chance to do it. Cause I knew that they would, you know, work me really hard out there. Um, so yeah, I, I went to, went to Europe and just kind of bummed around there for a minute and then came back. I was like, I think I'm going to give it a shot. Now I didn't know that the, what I perceived would be the, you know, one year of like being broke and stuff would turn into like 14 years of being broke. But, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, that's, that's, that's one of the sacrifices I think that, um, you you know, you make if you want to do something that you really want, it's like, how much is it worth to you? Is it, it's not always a dollar amount. It's a lifestyle too. You know, I can, you know, leave if I need to, you know, I can, I can take a week off if I want to. Um, yeah, it's really nice. I mean, I, I don't normally cause there's so much to do, but, <laughs> but you could, if you want <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Just the thought of no one m- can tell you, you can't. Yeah, that's right. Just the thought of maybe I can do this. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, yeah, that's kind of how the, the, the transition really went to actually becoming a, a brand. You know, and not just like, I'm, I'm just kind of making stuff in my off hours, you know, which is like, that's great. I mean, if, yeah, people want to do that, that's awesome. But th- there's definitely like a clear line for me. Like either I'm going to go, I'm going to jump into this full time and see what happens or it's going to be done, you know? Yeah. So, so speaking of starting a brand, you named your company Seagull Bags and for those who may be outside the Columbus, Ohio area listening to this, we are in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> There's no sea anywhere near us. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the closest Great Lake is two and a half hours away. Um, explain your thought process that brought you to the name Seagull. Yeah, so when I started making stuff, cycling specific things, there was not a big cycling community in Columbus. It was very small. Um, you would know most people that you would see riding on a bike back and forth. And it was a really, it was a terrible place to ride your bike. Like they didn't have bike lanes. Everyone thought that you should not be on the road. (laughs) And so you just get harassed constantly. I mean, it was pretty, pretty tumultuous. Um, and there wasn't any good reason that we should have been making stuff here. And the name kind of clicked. I was at, uh, Target or something like a, a big box store and I parked and I looked over and there's you know this massive parking lot and there's a seagull one single seagull out there and I thought like what the hell is he doing here he has no <laughs> business here it's like this doesn't even make any sense why he would be here and that's when it clicked like there's no reason that I should be here in Columbus making cycling stuff because there's not this huge community here just as much as that seagull shouldn't be in that parking lot um, so that's kind of where the name clicked and, you know, later, I mean, it's become clear that that provided the opportunity to do something that other people weren't, you know, here in Columbus. 
Very cool. So what, when I met you, you had your shop in Clintonville. You had, how many people were working for you at that point? Maybe eight. Okay. Six or eight. And yeah, the first time that we met, it was, we were right in the middle of just crazy growth. I mean, it was so hard to keep up with. It was like three or 400% a year. And not having any kind of like business acumen at all, it was just, I can see now where it was heading, <laughs> you know. We, we had just kind of like been in this place where it's like, we need to actually start to get like pro with our branding and, you know, we actually need to have a logo. And people were like, you know, asking for, oh, do you have a logo you can send over for, you know, articles or, and I didn't really. So it was just kind of a grab bag, like what I'd send them. I was like, oh, here's our name, just like typed out. <laughs> or you could use whatever font, it's cool. Uh, <laughs> And it wasn't until enough people just like made up kind of their own logo that was so gross that I was like, okay, we got to fix this. And yeah, I'd talked with Jeremy before. Um, and yeah, we kind of started in that process. And that was actually really a really key turning point for us because then we had something to base all of our, all the rest of our, our, our direction and, and our brand like off of, you know, we had actual material that, you know, we could make into shirts that we could like have that on our website really clear that we could kind of market with. So that really changed a lot. Yeah. I'm going to read something here from, yeah. from one of your blog posts. And this is um, much later, um, it, kind of looking back in, in retrospect, but you put on a blog, you had this kind of, Oh crap moment that goes the moment I realized that if we keep going in the fashion we are, that we wouldn't be around much longer. It was a process I was exhausted both physically and creatively. I was frustrated, confused, and defeated. I guess they call that burnout. How could that happen when you are doing something that you love with people you love? What happened? I'll try and boil it down. Um, save you some of the, the, the terrible, um, heartbreaking details, but not all of them. Uh, now, um, what ended up happening is we were growing so fast that it was like a house of cards that was getting taller and taller and taller. And there was, um, it really started on the business side and the organization side. Um, and I had a professor that told me that in particular, he's like, this is where creative people lose their shit is on the business side. And I had, I had known that, uh, but I don't think I really understood how that would come about. So we were growing, we were growing at a clip that was, exciting but also really alarming i mean i just i was telling uh my wife like this last week here were the expenses that we used to have monthly here's the total you know and it was i can't even believe it now i mean just with payroll and overhead and um every other thing that was going on it was really high so it started that's where it started to kind of erode underneath like this, this big tree, you know, that was our business, like the soil was just slowly kind of eroding underneath and things, you know, began to get more and more, um, tight as they went along. But we were in this place where there wasn't a whole lot of space for like making mistakes or like trying stuff out because we just had a lot of commitments. Um, and nothing, nothing will squish out your creative energy like being stressed about your overhead or something. So then everything becomes a decision between is this a good use of money and not is this something that's really cool that we're excited about. And that's where it started to 
really kind of get to and it stayed there for years as as it went on you know the market was kind of changing and stuff and we just didn't have a lot of space to really or i I should say that we didn't have a lot of space i should say that i didn't have a lot of space um, mentally to be able to really see i was stuck in the present and the you know the whole like urgency of now thing that had like that had like risen as like the ethos of the shop, which is a real problem. Um, so yeah, it kind of had gotten to this place. We had to kind of continually scale back and scale back and do like several, you know, rounds of scaling back and scaling back and scaling back. And then just realizing that I wasn't making the kind of stuff that I wanted to make up to that point we were doing, everything was custom And that became really hard because someone would call in, order a product that was like tan and yellow with like Kelly green Velcro, just disgusting. And you had to make it, you had to make it and you had to put your tag on it. And that was out in the world. Like that was your representation of your brand that you're putting all your, you know, your heart into. And that, that became really hard. So we kind of got to this place, like not only were we making a bunch of stuff that I didn't necessarily want to have our branding on, but we weren't able to make the kind of stuff that was in my head and that was like rolling around. And as we were mid current, um, cause we had such a small staff. Yeah. Burnout was like a really good way to put it. I mean, I really didn't know what to do about it. We were not going to be around if we go down this path. That was really like a really sobering thing. Cause at that point at you know, 12 years, there's 10 or 12 years, like into it, just kind of sit there one day and be like, wow, this is not sustainable. It's super sobering and kind of scary. You know, it's like, I didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. So, so so is, is one of the key learnings for you as not only a maker, but a business person is you had something that was wildly in demand based on your original ideas. But is it the custom orders that then said, I like what you do, but will you do it my way is, um, and do it for me in the way that I want it. Did that become the driving part of the business? Is that what sustained you guys? Is that, that, that didn't allow you to be the maker that you wanted to be because you were being the business person to fulfill someone else's desire. Is that, is that really what happened? Yeah, I I think it, that was definitely, I mean, that we were known for doing our custom stuff. And, you know, I don't want to say that it was terrible. I mean, we got to make a lot of really cool stuff <laughs> um, for sure. I mean, some of it just, I look back and I'm like, that was like the coolest thing ever. Um, but yeah, it definitely became about, you know, kind of like meeting their needs and, and not really putting our own like stamp on it. Like this is, this is what we think is awesome. And we have the experience of, you know, being bag makers for X number of years. And so like, it's really hard to, when you're a custom shop, it's really hard to tell people like, that idea is terrible. Like that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't, you literally cannot do that. Yeah. And yeah, so we we're kind of like right now, we've got ourselves back into a place where we can say like this bag, we know that this bag is as, as good of a bag as you're going to find out there. Cause we know what it takes to make it. And we designed this thing to be really good, you know, as opposed to you know, sacrificing for the sake of custom, but I'm, I'm not going to shirk any kind of blame. You know what I mean, it's like, there was definitely, 
a lot of missteps that I had, you know, just really not knowing how to run a business, even 10 years into it. You know, people spend their whole life trying to figure that out. There's a good reason that there's seminars and classes and videos and books. And, and I think for a long time, just whether it be the growth or the pressure of this business or whatever, I just kind of had put my head down and everything was happening in this isolation. Now, now I can see it. It's like, you don't create stuff in a bubble. That's a terrible idea. And I had, I had been doing that, I think. Yeah, I, I remember, the, the, I think the best way to explain it, for at least from an outsider's perspective, is the first time I met you and walked into your shop, it, it, the joy I saw in you and the people that were working for you is kind of like, reminded me of the, the mice and Cinderella, you know, while they were all working together to kind of put this dress together. And, you know, it just this, this almost giddiness and fun of this tiny little boutique that had these super colorful bags that were totally custom and people were coming in just this little tiny shop and wanting to order something real special, you know? And then I remembered within about a year or so trying to get a hold of you for like two weeks and not being able to get a hold of you. And then I talked with you and you said, dude, I am so sorry. He said, I, uh, we just got this order for this conference and they want like, like 3000 bags or something like that. And they need it by, they need it in, two weeks or something crazy like that. I remember what it was, but it was basically the same bag. It was one bag, one style, one colorway, and you want, and they wanted a, a thousand or 2000, whatever, yeah, yeah. a lot of them. And they needed it turned around relatively quickly. And I remember you said, I stayed up all night last night and trying to decide whether or not I was willing to take this job. And initially I told them no. And then I said, no, we can do this. And I called them back and said, yeah, let's do this. And I just remember you at that point had moved into a larger space that was, you could have had a basketball court in there. That was huge. It was huge. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, I could see the stress on you going through that process. I also think that wasn't that far off from when you were getting married. There were a lot of things happening to you right about that time that I think just was a real pivotal moment for you. But then when I heard about just about a year and a half ago now, I had heard through the grapevine, uh, and I don't know if it had been because of your blog post or whatever, but someone said, Daniel's shutting down Seagull, and it's going away. And I was really shocked to hear that. Uh, so I reached back out to you, and then you know we reconnected about it, and we had... Um, we we met at Starbucks and talked about mm-hmm. kind of what you had gone through over the last six months. I know you had been kind of personally fulfilling some of the last orders, kind of trying to get some of that stuff out and just we're really going through a process of transition, trying to figure out what's next. So tell us about what happened there and, and how you kind of got to where you are today. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's funny you bring that order up because that was really what broke a little bit some of the, some of the whole process open. I mean, we got completely hosed on that order (laughs) i mean it was it was and you know not only that but it was really big and it was totally my fault i mean i you know didn't plan it right we didn't really execute it right and that's really when like things were started they were starting to like lay bare like what was really going on um right about that time is when the recession really hit like down kind of in you know it it hits on a big scale and then when it gets into some of the more you know specific industries it takes a little bit and so a lot of the you know, kind of like luxury items or, or things started to really take a hit. So 
we had moved, yeah, we had moved in this huge space based off of the growth that we had had. And there was no reason not to. And then it was like pretty quickly. Yeah. We got hose in this big order. The bottom kind of fell out and it was, oh yeah. I mean, you could probably see it <laughs> like on me. I was like, I was just like a wraith. <laughs> just kind of on the wind, you know, <laughs> like not even a real person anymore. Um, really stressful. Um, yeah, it, it got to this point that it was like, I, I can't keep doing this. You know, it's like I, it was taking a huge effect on my health. I mean, you know, a lot of things. I mean, this stuff, it was real, you know, and, and this was kind of all I'd really known. We had basically got to the place where there was four of us left. It was like me and my buddy Matt, my brother John, and my friend Micah. And we all were super, super close. Uh, and John and Micah had been there for the majority of it. And I just came in one day and was like, I'm hitting pause, you know, and this was around this time of year, uh, two years ago. And I said, there's not really going to be any work for anybody in January. So you might want to try and figure that out. That was one of the worst days of my life, having to let people that close to you go that had put so much into it and not being able to usher them into any kind of success of the brand. Right. So yeah, we, we hit pause and there was an impression that, you know, I was just going to hit pause and then go just like lay around and like, you know, job well done. Like you take some time off. And like, that was not what happened. I mean, you know, for months after that, people be like, Oh, do you like enjoy your time off? And no is the answer. Cause it's like <laughs> there were, we had all these orders still and I had to finish them out myself. And after I finished that, then I had to figure out what was going to happen after that. I had no idea. And, you know, talking through my wife and stuff, and she had said one day, if you don't do this, if you don't see this through, you're going to wonder, you're going to wonder what's going to, you know, what would have happened and it's going to drive you crazy. And that was the absolute truth. I then went about trying to figure out how to build a, a different brand in a month, maybe six weeks. I don't know. That turnaround that we did for the logo was really quick. Um, luckily, we see eye to eye on most things. So that period was real crazy um but it was kind of cool because i got to like sit down no distractions once all the orders were cleared out that was it i had no there was nothing no income and no income that was so (laughs) great no orders and no income no income oh god yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and yeah so yeah trying to rebrand with yeah, basically zero zero budget and you know it, it really got back to it felt a lot like when i was designing stuff you know in my house when i was in college just like you know getting things just immediately out of my brain what we'd wanted to make for a long time and yeah it felt really good to finally just get that stuff out you know so you hit pause your wife smacks you with a line of wisdom about truth truth (laughs) truth slap you get the truth slap there you go um she doesn't actually so You you rebrand and Seagull lives on, but it's different. Talk, talk about this sort of pivot in, in what's different for you now in terms of um, how you go about doing it, how you think about the business, where you want it to go, yeah, um, and sort of the creative energy that you've um, rediscovered. Rediscovering, that's a great way to put it, because it was lost, (laughs) for sure. I had to go and find it. And it's been awesome. I mean, you know, the past couple of years, it's been this, like, 
steady progression of refining that and just letting some of that like come back in and yeah i mean a lot's changed with just the nuts and bolts of how we run the business we everything's standard products that helps us to forecast and be a little bit better on the financial and bookkeeping aspect uh we can you know now in comparison to a couple years ago we have really tight branding you know everything it, and it's like really satisfying for me like when i go to our website and i look at the products page it's like everything is just like it's tight it feels good even though we've been you know back for a couple years year and a half or, or so we're like still in this like deep inhale before we roar you know it's really cool and it's really it's really exciting and already it seems like things are kind of starting to like bubble again in the way that they did when we started what from your prior experience will make this different in terms of will you grow big again um you, you know you're kind of small and nimble right now how will you avoid or how will you inoculate yourself from the stress and the burnout that you had before in terms of growing the business again we have to keep you know without dwelling on them but we have to be very aware of what we've been through and check everything against that rubric of are we going down the same path that we did before is this different i am wary and refuse to grow it the same way didn't know this before today that you're in a band yeah Jeremy said earlier this idea of, you know, the, the idea of side projects, freelance, that sort of get our brains off of that thing that we're just so focused on. I assume music is a great outlet for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even even there, you found an opportunity um, that you're about ready to launch this Kickstarter program. That you're here, you are as a musician doing something, but you found an application for your craft. Talk about that. Yeah. If you're a guitar player, especially if you play a lot or, or you tour a lot, it's like you know exactly what your gig bag looks like. It's a mess of guitar strings that are completely disorganized. You know, a lot of people will break the same string over and over again, and you have to buy a whole pack of strings, and then you have you know four or five just randoms like kicking around in there, and they get you know, especially if you're playing and you break a string and you run off stage and you're rooting through your bag and you never have the one thing that you actually need. So yeah, I just designed something for myself that, you know, essentially it's, it's a big sleeve where you can slide all the strings in. Um, you can fit like up to a hundred strings in it if you want and roll it up really tight. Everything's organized by size and it fits in your guitar case. And I, I just designed it for myself. I thought it was cool. I used it. And it wasn't until people started to offer to buy it off of me, like right there, that I realized, like, this is actually a really good, this is something that people want and that they need. We're trying to do it the right way this time. <laughs> you know, take what we've learned um, through Seagull uh, past and really build this thing in a way that's sustainable and, you know, fits in its place within, you know, my um, work life. You know, I don't think this is going to become the, the full thing that I'm spending all of my time doing. Um, but it's a really good side project. So setting it up in a way that it's sustainable for that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we talk a lot about the value of side projects to just continue to help us never stop discovering because mm -hmm. that's, that's where the next great ideas come from that 
if you're just sitting here at your sewing machine, you're not likely to be able to get that that yeah. same result. You're not going to come up with that solution because yeah. your brain's just not thinking that way. Yeah. And it's like that, that creativity, I mean, the creativity, if you're a creative person, it's going to come out. If it's, if it's like not in your primary work that you're doing, it's going to come out sideways. You know, like it, you know, either in like a new product or like you start getting way into wearing belly shirts and that's <laughs> some, it, it can get really weird. I, you know? <laughs> I know you're, way, I can't, you had that phase, Jeremy. I, know. <laughs> I, I can't relate to the belly shirts, nor should anybody ever picture <laughs> me in one. <laughs> that's how you want to express yourself. Man. How did you know about that? <laughs> I thought I was only doing that in my office when no one was around. But. Yeah. I watch you sleep, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting weird. On that note. Yeah. Um, so, Seagull is back. You've got um, your string stash about... Re- is that ready to launch? Is that... Tell us about that. It'll be it, in the turn of the year. Turn yeah, of the year. So, a okay. lot of it has been, yeah, working with Jeremy, taking a chance on it. He helps out with the logo and, and a lot of the branding stuff and... We just we've gone about it really slow to make sure that we do it the right way and all the sourcing channels are figured out and that we have the Kickstarter really figured out and um, yeah we're just making sure that we do it the right way yeah yeah that's I'm awesome e- I'm excited to see if the need is out there that we think there is yeah this is one of the things that's so awesome about about crowdfunding is it's an opportunity to find out whether or not you have a viable product before you make it. Yeah. Which is kind of exciting. It's exciting. A little nerve wracking. It's, but. A, but it's a lot less scary. <laughs> it's a lot less scary than going out and manufacturing, a, you know, thousands of these and then hoping right. somebody buys one. Right. Yeah. I think this is what crowdfunding was meant to do. Yeah. It was meant to help people understand that there's a, a need and a desire for something you have before you go invest all the time and money into create to actually producing the product. Right. And so hopefully we'll find out at the end of the Kickstarter campaign that there's been, you know, people are connecting in the same way that you connected with this product are connecting in the same way. And that we've found a, found something that people realize they couldn't live without. Yeah. That is the hope. (laughs) We'll see. Thanks to Daniel for inviting us into his studio, sharing his story, and proving that real joy comes from the hard work and devotion of doing something you believe you were created to do. To see what Daniel's up to with Seagull Bags, or get behind Daniel's Kickstarter effort to see how he's simplifying a common problem that every guitarist has with String Stash, go to the Joy Venture website and click on Daniel's story on the podcast page. To hear more podcasts or read our posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer in all of us to become the doer we were meant to be, visit us at joyventure.net. And if you're discovering or developing your joy, drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it. And until next time, remember, never stop discovering. Thanks for listening.